At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that her Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hunger with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Okay, can you hear me properly? Good morning. So I have preached on Advent and Mary a few times over the past few years. And every time I come to the story of Mary and the narrative of the birth of Jesus, I have tended to automatically put myself in the place of Mary. Now that, when I really think about it, sounds a little silly, because Mary was probably about two decades younger than I, than I am now, uh, maybe even more. And I'm not a peasant Israelite young woman, but because I was having babies at the time, I automatically put myself in her position. But this time, as I listened to the passages that Neva just read, um, I found myself relating to someone else in the story, someone who isn't even mentioned in the Gospels, someone who's only named in apocryphal literature, and that's Mary's mother, Anne. Now, scholars don't know how old Mary was, but some think it wasn't out of the question that she was as young as 13. So now that I have a 13-year-old daughter, my first feeling, my first sense as I finished listening to these passages and having them seep into my heart was kind of a feeling of uneasiness. I realized I was reading this passage from a mother's perspective. And I thought, God, how could you have given such a burden to such a child? Knowing what she would have faced as a young, pregnant, unmarried woman in her culture, how could you have placed such a burden on her? So, to be honest, that's where I started with this sermon preparation, feeling a motherly sort of grief and sense of protectiveness on behalf of Mary. 
And I hope that's okay that I'm honest about some of the feelings and expectations and assumptions that I've come to with this passage. And I hope we can all kind of be honest that we have some assumptions when we come to these passages. And in some ways, I hope that means that we can come ready for the story to make a mark on us and even perhaps leaving us, leave us feeling uncomfortable. Because these stories are not sweet. We have tended in our culture to make the Christmas story only sweet and calm and beautiful and silent. And that certainly has its place. But if we gloss over the pain and tragedy that accompany these stories, then what is the joy at the end really worth? This time in Advent is a time for us to wait with uncertainty and hope all rolled together. And I think the joy is more worth it because of what we've come through, because of the story of discomfort and pain. The beauty of Scripture, I think, is that we believe that God is alive and still working through the words on this page, but most importantly, through the living word Christ. And I think it's good to sometimes get emotionally connected to these characters even if we might not automatically relate to them specifically, if we can listen to them and try to hear what they are teaching, teaching us about what it means to be human, and in this story, women who have encountered God. So we, <clears throat> we come to the passage that Neva just read on the heels of a great announcement from Gabriel. Matthew preached on this last week. An, an announcement to this poor young woman from a backwoods town She's told that she's going to carry God's child. And then she's told about her relative Elizabeth, who is also going to have a child in remarkable circumstances. So at the beginning of this passage that Neva read, there's a version that says, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah. There's a lot in just that one little sentence. So this trip from where Mary was in Nazareth to this hill country in Judea was probably around 80 miles. It could have taken around three to four days on foot. And it was the kind of grueling journey that Mary probably would not have taken alone. She probably had some kind of companions. We don't know who they are or where they went, but it's likely a woman in her position would not have gone alone. So this is clearly a physical journey but it's also a spiritual journey that Mary is taking. And we can see that in the words that Luke uses to describe um, her, her journey to Elizabeth. The word arose in Greek means more than just get up. This is an action with more purpose than just getting up out of bed to get your coffee in the morning, though that can be a spiritual journey for some of us, or even just going on a weekend trip. Scholar Edward Sree says that Luke has used this word arose in other places to illustrate actions that take a great spiritual effort. So, for example, later in Luke, we hear about the prodigal son who arose and went back to his father after living in filth and poverty and realizing it was time to go home. When Jesus calls the tax collector Levi, he rose and immediately followed. So Mary here is, she's given a life-altering and ultimately universe-altering announcement and task. And instead of mulling about, she arose and grabbed the task and took off with it to Elizabeth's house. We're already seeing that Mary is a young woman of purpose and action. No wonder God chose her. 
And this phrase, with haste, can mean with thoughtfulness or eagerness. Later in Luke 2, just one chapter later, the shepherds are going to go with haste when the angels tell them about this baby. But Sri points out that these two, uh, these two characters, the shepherds and Mary, they're not just going to see to check to see if the angel was right. They're not going for proof. It's more of an eagerness that can't be contained. Mary, I imagine, is longing for a sign and for confirmation, but it's more that she's so intent on being an active participant in this journey that she can't help but go, just as the shepherds will. Sri says that Mary goes urgently to witness firsthand the great things God is doing in Elizabeth's life, and she will find out the great things God is doing in her own. So Mary enters this home, and of course, we're told that it's Zechariah's home, this priest of the division of Abijah, which will take us back a few verses. And this is important that, that Zechariah is named just here because we're going to start seeing some contrasts and parallels between Zechariah and Mary. So let's go back a few verses to, toward the beginning of chapter, the chapter of Luke. Uh, Mary preached last, last week on the Annunciation of Mary when Gabriel comes to her. But before that, there is this announcement from Gabriel, the same angel, to Zechariah. Now, several scholars have said that it's okay to laugh at the humor of this story of Zechariah. And when we really look at it, it's a little bit of a comedy of errors. You can kind of imagine that this would be a comedic moment in a movie. Here we have this serious, faithful priest who lives in the hill country, but he comes into Jerusalem when it's his turn to fulfill his temple duties, and then he's going to go back home to his day-to-day -day life as a teacher and a leader in his community. But in this scene, this priest, who has probably come from teaching some of the old familiar stories of Abraham and Sarah, who had a baby in her old age, of Hannah, praying for a baby and then having Samuel, of Rachel and Jacob praying for children. So he's gone with his head full of these stories into the inner court of the temple to prepare incense. Can you imagine a better visual setup for an angel to come? Imagine mist and fog and incense. It's like it was pre-made for an angel. And when the angel comes and tells him that the same thing will be happening to him and to his wife, I can just imagine him dropping the incense and backing away. And he's shocked, understandably. What a shock. And then he has a little trouble believing. It's a good example of the things that we know in our head not quite making it to our heart. And then many months later, into his house, arrives his young relative Mary, who has also been given the announcement by the angel Gabriel. But think about the difference in these two stories. It's not unheard of in the scriptures that Zechariah is aware of for a woman to have a child in her old age. But what Mary has been given is by all accounts an impossibility. And what does Mary do? Judith Jones says that Zechariah asked for proof that the angel's word was true. Mary asked for an explanation of what was going to happen and then gave her willing consent. Zechariah, the religious professional, doubts God and doesn't even believe the stories that he himself has been teaching. But Mary, the peasant girl, believed and trusted in God's word. 
we see these contrasts being set up. And this will be significant as we keep going. And when Mary enters this house and begins her interaction with Elizabeth, Zechariah then is not mentioned again. This priest of status and honor and privilege, what is he doing? Kelly Nikondeha says that Zechariah had to literally be made mute to listen and witness to the theology that these women are doing. I can kind of imagine Zechariah listening to these women as they come together, but he can't, he can't participate in the conversation. He just has to listen. Zechariah is a foil for Mary, who chose willingness where he chose unwillingness. Maybe this is a learning time for Zechariah. He is silent as the women are bursting into glorious, spirit-inspired speech. I kind of think maybe this is Gabriel and God's little joke. But what God is already doing in this intimate space is really important. God is doing something here, literally inside of these women, between these women, and maybe even in the heart of this silent man. So we hear that Mary greets Elizabeth. It's a short greeting, but Bayer says she's doing more than just passing on a simple human greeting. If we remember earlier in the chapter, Gabriel greets Mary. And now, when Mary brings this greeting to Elizabeth, her simple human greeting becomes the good news, the gospel of salvation. And that's not an exaggeration, because what happens next? Verse 41, Luke says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What a greeting! Nikandeha imagines that Elizabeth meant to just give a simple hello, but with this great movement of the Spirit within her, she gives this great blessing to Mary, a blessing for the ages. So what is this blessing? Well, Elizabeth, who is, we know, is the mother of the great prophet John the Baptist, she is the one first prophesying before her son is even born. And what is her prophecy and blessing? She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So there's a lot happening in this blessing and prophecy. Joan says that Elizabeth is actually using more than one word for blessed. First, when she says Mary is blessed among women and proclaims that the fruit of Mary's womb is blessed, she's using a word that emphasizes both the present and the future. So the words here are suggesting that salvation has already come. Blessing has already come, even in, with the baby in her womb but also that future generations are going to praise and bless her and speak well of her and her child. And then she uses the word makaria when she says, blessed is she who believed. This is the same word that Jesus used to bless people in the Beatitudes. And, and Joan says this means divine joy because she has believed that God is able to do what God promises to do. She is given divine joy because of her belief. So do you hear that, that last line? Surely Zechariah would have heard it too. 
He would have heard the discussion between Mary and Elizabeth. Perhaps he's standing on the corner hearing his wife prophesy, hearing his wife bless this peasant girl for doing what he could not or did not do. It's pretty humbling. But God is doing a reversal. God is is reversing the things that, that humans generally think is powerful. And now... I want to pause for just a minute to give an emotional connection, to sort of bring ourselves, if we can, emotionally into the story. To imagine Mary now, a young woman, a young woman whose story made me feel protective of her, a young woman who's been given this huge burden, and she's just had this immense announcement. She's pregnant. She's had this long journey in trying to decipher the angel's message, She has rushed here with purpose and action, with fear and uncertainty, with the threat of shame and public humiliation. And here, her older cousin, who she should be giving honor to because of her status, it is Elizabeth who greets her with honor, filled with the Spirit, and blesses her. Jones reminds us that Elizabeth probably knew what it was like to feel shame for her lack of children in a culture that prized a fruitful womb. So she is even more in a position to understand what Mary faces with her unplanned pregnancy. And yet, instead of shaming her, she praises and blesses and prophesies over her. So here I can just imagine a young Mary hearing this blessing and falling into Elizabeth's arms and weeping with relief and joy in this safe, sacred, spirit-filled space where two women blessed by God, come to meet and honor and encourage each other. And as I approached this passage again with motherly grief and protectiveness, I felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder here, saying, look, look what I provided here. Look how I cared for Mary. God didn't place this burden on Mary and leave her there. This is right where God is caring for her. He says, Mary, you've gone out in faith not knowing what will come, and here is your gift, this quiet, joyful space with Elizabeth, a place to talk about their fears, their joys, a place to rest and encourage each other, a place where all that she's been told is confirmed. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience where you felt overwhelmed or ashamed or afraid, and all it took was one loving word or a brace to make you feel safe. That's what Elizabeth has done for Mary. And now it's Mary's turn. This great and famous song of Mary, the Magnificat. Now, I've, I was talking to Elizabeth last week that I've seen some funny memes or, uh, you know, clever memes associated with uh, this first chapter of Luke, Gabriel coming to Mary, and also Mary's song here that we're about to talk about. Related to the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, did you know? I'm sure most of you have heard that one. One of the most bizarre ones I've seen is a comic strip of Batman and a villain. The villain is in the middle of singing, Mary, did you know? And Batman is slapping him across the face, and instead of saying, zam, pow, his response is, yes, she did. Read Luke 1. (laughs) Mary did know. Now, I'm not trying to offend you if you love Mary, did you know? I think it's arguable that Mary did know, 
And also, she didn't know the full implications of what was going to happen to her. But clearly, Mary is a young woman of faith, filled with the Spirit, and she knows the story of God's care for God's people. She knows more than we often give her credit for. Now, there are numerous sermons that could be done on the Magnificat, but I think it's important for this sermon that the things we're seeing God doing in this contrast between Zechariah and Mary are now sung and verbalized by Mary. So the first part of the Magnificat focuses on God's personal blessings to Mary herself. The second half is about the blessings that God is going to bestow upon Israel. But the whole song is full of ways that God is and will reverse or flip the things that the world has honored. This reversal starts with Mary herself, a humble servant, one who Matthew pointed out she called herself a slave to God, a young peasant woman who is being exalted and blessed by the wife of a woman of high status and honor, Elizabeth, who is himself being humbled. Zachariah is being humbled. She's being exalted by God by carrying this child and believing, but it doesn't end there. Sri says that Mary herself is seeing God's work in her life as a pattern, anticipating what God wants to do for all of God's people. So Mary sees what is happening in her own life is going to happen for all of God's people. God will bring the lowly to exaltation, and those in power God will make low. Craddock points out that the way the images and rhythms and words of this song are arranged builds to the momentum of verses 52 to 53. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That most intense and climactic part of the song is one that is often actually neglected in popular recordings of the Magnificat. To see, look up some, some recordings, and sometimes they miss these verses. And I think it's because these verses are threatening to the status quo. In fact, D.L. Mayfield points out that throughout history, uh, there have been oppressive regimes that have banned the use of the Magnificat because of these verses. Because they offer preferential treatment to the poor and the lowly, and they depict an image of God who will not let those in power escape judgment. Even the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis, understood the power of this song. He said, The song of Mary is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. This song is both prophecy and good news. It prophesies the kingdom that for Mary is already coming within her womb through Jesus. It prophesies an upside-down kingdom of reversals that will find its final fulfillment when Jesus comes again. These reversals will come, but they have already begun. And Mary sees that in her very body, a young, poor woman birthing the Savior of the world. And then we get this last phrase, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and returned home. 
I like that these two prophetic passages end with this phrase because it brings us back down to reality, to birth, to these two women, to the place where this encounter began. Mary stays with Elizabeth three months. Now, we don't know for sure if Mary left before or after the birth of John, but clearly the women offered encouragement and blessing to one another in a fraught and joyous time. But the next years, the years to come, are not to be idealized. With all the joy that they share, there will come great suffering for mothers of boys who are not ordinary. Nikondeha says that they will both, these boys, shake the status quo, draw attention to their families in uncomfortable ways, be misunderstood and misrepresented. These mothers would not only gestate and birth revolutionaries, but also lose them at the hands of the law and order men of their day. But they would change the world. So here is what I love and take away from this passage with Mary and Elizabeth. It's how we work out our encounters with God and community. It's how we comfort one another in the most momentous times of our lives. It's how God offers spaces to us, even in the midst of burdens and suffering and pain. Byrne notes that in this passage, these two women, both of whom have had a religious experience that they only partly understand, are brought together in this communal space. And it is in this space that prophecy and blessing happens. He says the two women and the two stories have come together. And faith overflows in knowledge, testimony, and celebration. In the meeting of these two women, in the hospitality they, ex- they exchange, we see the beginnings of the community that will share and celebrate the blessings of salvation. We also see that what God began inside Mary in her very womb, a reversal, God brings into the home of Zechariah, and that will continue throughout the kingdom of God. So what are we to do with this? I would suggest two things. One, look for God's reversals. How is God flipping our human script? How is the kingdom alive right here in Columbiana, in Poland, in New Waterford, in Greenford? Who are the people the world sees as powerless and humble, who God is using to bring the kingdom here? Pray that God gives you and us eyes to see those reversals in the people and situations you encounter every day. And finally, bring your personal encounters with God into community. I've already seen you do this all the time. Continue to share them and make sense of them with each other. And if you are like Zechariah, maybe listen a little more. If you are like Mary, take action even in your uncertainty. If you are like Elizabeth, bless those the world tells you to shame. Offer them comfort, but allow them to comfort you and teach you too. The Bible and Christian history is full of God encountering people alone, in burning bushes, in rock clefts, in quiet rooms, in monasteries, on mountaintops. But here in Luke, these women who have personal encounters with God make sense of those encounters together in community, in a space that is safe and full of the Spirit. So let's ask God together to help all of us at Midway to create these safe, spirit-filled spaces for each other and for anyone who will come into our midst.